there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Father Beccarini, will you baptize our youngest child, Mario? You know that I am not one to turn away a child from the light of the Lord. But you must first let me say my piece. Of course. Benny, you're a hard worker and you do your best to provide for your family. And that is commendable. But you consistently profane the word of God. You are talking about my healing practice? I have read this history of yours. A parishioner gave it to me. Father, I can explain. I have had visions of the divine. That doesn't concern me, but this booklet does. It's blasphemy. It's obscene. And I know that you know better. But you should see the faces of those who come to me for help. I do, Benny. They come here as well. Just the same as you and your family. You come here to San Francisco Church. You sit in our pews. You take our rights. You say you want you and your wife and your children to all be good Catholics. We do. We do. You know better, Benny. This cult of yours is a sin. And every act you perform is an affront to God. The one and true God. I know that you know this, because here you are, asking me to bless your baby boy. And I will be happy to do it. Thank you, Father. Thank you. But my son, I fear that if you don't soon lay these blasphemies aside, you risk not only your own soul, but those of your family as well. I hear you, Father. I do. Oh, dark deeds draw dark enemies. Cast these false prophecies away before it's too late. Benny Evangelist was an Italian immigrant who came over to the United States in 1903, first settling in Pennsylvania. Working as a railroad worker by day, at night, Benny followed his fascination into the occult and built a faith healing practice. By 1920, Benny had relocated to Detroit, Michigan, where he met his wife, Santina, and started a family. By the summer of 1929, the evangelists had four children. Angelina, the eldest, was eight years old. Matthew was six, the youngest daughter, Jenny, was four, and baby Mario was only 18 months. In 1929, Benny led his own cult of worshipers, 
conducting occult rituals and performing healing services out of the basement of the family home. The evangelists were well off, with Benny running a successful carpentry business, as well as speculating on real estate in addition to leading his cult. And despite leading his own cult, Benny and his family were practicing Catholics. But it all came to a savage end on the morning of July 3rd, 1929. Benny Evangelist, his wife, and their four children were butchered in their home in what became known as the St. Alban Street Massacre. Two early suspects were cleared with alibis, and ties to local crime syndicates also came up short. The theory that Detroit police kept coming back to was that a crazed follower of Benny's bizarre cult must have gone insane and slaughtered the entire family. Understandably, few would openly admit to police that they were followers of Benny's cult. Which left Detroit's finest with little to go on in their search for a vicious killer. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our second episode on the St. Albans Street Massacre. If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. With investigators focused on Benny Evangelist cult as the key to the Evangelist murders, they began to scour for any information they could find. But Benny's followers were hard to come by. Few would admit to using Benny's services or attending his rituals. Excuse me, were you familiar with The Departed? Uh, No. We're from Lafayette Park. Were you familiar with The Departed? We only came to pay our respects to the children. Were you familiar with The Departed? No, I'm a good Christian. Asking at the family's funeral, or asking the neighbors, led to little progress. No one wanted to be associated with Benny or his cult or their gruesome end. About one month after the murders in August 1929, Detective Michael Larco claimed to have found and arrested a fanatical follower of Benny's who admitted to the murders. But after the Detroit police found that Larco needed the reward money the city was offering and that the man's story didn't add up, he was let go. That left detectives with one choice, to look deeper into Benny's past. When Benny Evangelist arrived in the United States in 1903, he first settled around York County, Pennsylvania. And York County is where Benny was introduced to the folk magic known as powwowing. Bring up your brother. Yes, sir, Mr. Angelino. He's pained by a wheel on his eye. Oh, does it hurt? I hurt something awful. Tilt your head back. I'm going to scoop up this plate and press it to your eye. It's still got food on it. It's supposed to. Now hold still while I say these words. Are you ready? Yes. Dirty plate, I press thee. Wheel on the eye, do flee. <gasps> do you feel better, Paul? The pain's gone. Come up to the house. I have rosemary eye drops for you as well. Powwowing was a form of European folk magic that was brought to America by the Pennsylvania Dutch. It mixed healing charms and mystic rituals with pre-Reformation Christianity, venerating saints and the usage of sacred objects. 
Colonial Pennsylvania's widespread religious tolerance led to the blending of many religious sects, such as the Anabaptists, Quakers, and the Lutherans, along with mystics and free thinkers. The Bible was still considered the primary text of the powwow tradition, but other grimoires, or spellbooks, were also used as manuals for healing and driving away evil influences. Perhaps the most popular of these spellbooks was powwows, or Long Lost Friend, by John George Homan. Homan was a German-American printer and bookseller, as well as healer, and he self-published this collection of charms and remedies in 1820. Long Lost Friend caught on quickly, and its cures were commonplace in Pennsylvania folk traditions by the end of the 19th century. The dirty plate remedy that we just heard is featured in the book as a cure for a wheel, a raised swelling on the skin. More commonly referred to today as hives or welts. And there are other more bizarre cures. To remove warts, roast chicken feet and rub the warts with them. Then bury the chicken feet under the eaves. Holman's book could also be used as a talisman to protect its owner or to plague rivals, but we'll discuss that more in a moment. Right now, the important thing to consider is why did this sort of folk magic catch on? What made it so appealing to immigrants like Benny Evangelist? We think the answer lies in the connection of folks' belief in the old world, sort of bringing a piece of the old into the new. A piece of home. Exactly. The powwowing kept them connected to their roots, even as they settled into new ground. And there's added convenience in that many of the curative items could be found around the house. Dirty plates, rosemary, chicken feet. We shouldn't forget that traditional medicine at the time was still in a transitional period. That's true. While advances had been made with antiseptics and vaccines, many modern medical conveniences like x-rays and advanced drugs had yet to be invented. Folk remedies were still popular among the rural and the poor where resources were limited, a bit like alternative medicine is today. Folk healers were considered a real asset to their communities. Perhaps that's why Benny Evangelist started his career in folk remedies. He saw a way to help the community, to make a name for himself, and also to earn a little extra. And that's what Benny did. He began transcribing his night visions and offering to cure folks with the powwow remedies, earning his nickname, Benny the Preach. Of course, there were other practitioners of powwowing in York County while Benny was still there. And one of them was involved with murder. Almost a year before the St. Aubin Street Massacre in November 1928, York County experienced its own infamous killing. Enter, friend. Your Nellie Noll, the River Witch of Marietta. And your John Blymeyer. Tell me of your bad tidings, young man, so that I may help you. I think someone's got a hex on me. My wasting disease is acting up. My two boys took their last breaths as soon as their first. I lost my job, and now my wife is leaving me. Hard times indeed. What is it you wish to know? Who's done it? Who's put the hex on me? I see, I see. Who is it that's wronged me? The Witch of Raymire's Hollow, Nelson Raymire. How do I stop it? Take his spellbook, the long-lost friend, and a lock of Raymire's hair. Burn them both and bury them underground. That will end your curse. 
Blymeyer and two teenaged co-conspirators, John Curry and Wilbert Hess, broke into Nelson Raymeyer's home on November 27, 1928, the night before Thanksgiving. It did not go well. Where's the book, old man? I can't give you my book. I can give you some money. We need the book. Take him. You idiot! You killed him! What do we do now? Burn it! Burn everything! The murderous trio sent Raymeyer's house on fire, but by closing all the windows and doors in their escape, they cut off the fire's ventilation. The house scorched instead of burning to the ground, and Raymeyer's body was found two days later. The unusual motivation for the killing came out during Blymeyer's trial and turned into a national sensation. Raymeyer's death was soon followed by the evangelist killings almost nine months later. The links between the murder of Benny Evangelist the Occult and the murder of Ray Myers in York County, Pennsylvania, led Detroit police to suspect the two cases might be connected. Unfortunately, there wasn't too much to be found. Benny had started as a practitioner of powwowing, but that seems to be the only connection to the Ray Meyer killing. But Detroit police did discover that in Pennsylvania, Benny had been acquaintances with another healer, Aurelius Angelino. Angelino was around the same age as Benny Evangelist, and like Benny, he was also an Italian immigrant. The extent of their relationship appears to be unknown. Some accounts say they performed rituals together, while others say the two men didn't know each other at all. But an interesting wrinkle was discovered. In 1919, about a year before Benny Evangelist moved to Detroit, Aurelius Angelino murdered his twin four-year-old sons. He clubbed the boys to death chopped their bodies to pieces, and stored them outside in milk cans under a for sale sign. It's horrific, but Detroit police noted that the hacking mutilations of the boys' bodies were similar to what had been done to the evangelist family. So police followed up on Angelino's whereabouts at the Fairview State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Waymart, Pennsylvania, where Angelino was committed after his trial. How can I help you, detectives? We're here to check on one of your patients, Doc. Aurelius Angelino. Yeah, we think there might be a connection between him and our cult murder case in Detroit. Interesting, but I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. Which is? Aurelius Angelino wasn't here. He escaped quite some time ago. Escaped? Do you have any idea where he might be? Certainly. He's dead. Angelino made many escape attempts from Fairview, eventually ending up on the run after 1920. In 1927, two years before the St. Albans Street Massacre, Angelino was believed to have been a vagrant who was run over by a freight train in Baltimore. But due to the mangled condition of the body, it was difficult for his wife to identify the remains. So the detectives looking into Benny Evangelist's past found a possible suspect, only to find out that it was too late to question him. Or was it? Are you suggesting that Angelino wasn't dead? The guy could get around. And if the identification of the body was a mistake, who knows? But why would Angelino have been looking for Benny Evangelist? If they were rivals while they were both in Pennsylvania, then maybe Angelino was jealous that Benny was out living a full life while he rotted away in the asylum. Mm, pretty far-fetched. I mean, we might as well suggest that Benny and Angelino killed each other's families as a form of blood sacrifice. That's not just far-fetched, that's on the moon. Huh. Delving into Benny's past pulled up some interesting connections, but as far as solving the family's murder, the police had hit yet another dead end. 
But the next big development in the case would involve a religious maniac and a human sacrifice. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And now let's continue the story. Almost three years passed before the next development in the St. Aubin Street Massacre case. But on Sunday, November 20th, 1932, it arrived in spectacular fashion. Late that afternoon, Detroit police received a call from concerned neighbors that the body of James Smith, a middle-aged man, had been found. Where's the body? Through there, in the second room on the altar. Altar? If there's blood, it looks like he was dragged. Uh, are you seeing this? Looks like his head's been crushed. And stabbed through the heart. That knife's buried to the hilt. What happened here? Several hours later, both Robert Harris and his wife Bertha, the owners of the home where the body was found, were located and arrested without incident. And Harris was forthcoming not only in admitting his guilt, but also why he did it. Of course I killed him. I am the divine prophet. I am the king of the Order of Islam. The king? Yes, the king of the 100 apostles of the Order of Islam. They are my children. I am their king. Okay, king. Why'd you kill James Smith? What'd you do to him? It was his time. The ninth hour of the 20th day had come. 1,500 years ago, it was predestined that at that hour, I must make a human sacrifice to my gods. It must not be a follower of the Order of Islam, but a stranger. The first person I meet outside my home. So Smith was just unlucky? No, he was chosen. I invited him into my home just after 9 a.m. Just as he sat down, I smashed his skull with the rear axle of an automobile, just to shut him up. Then you dragged him to the altar? Yes. There I sank the sacrificial dagger into his heart, as the gods require. It is interesting to note that Harris's Order of Islam was an offshoot of the political organization that would later come to be known as the Nation of Islam. Because of Harris's brutal crime, Detroit police came to refer to the Nation of Islam as the voodoo cult, although it should be noted that the Nation of Islam has little to do with voodoo as practiced in the Caribbean. Police noted not only the vicious and bizarre nature of Robert Harris's crime, but also that it took place at 1429 Dubois Street, only 10 blocks from where the St. Aubin Street massacre occurred at 3587 St. Aubin Street. Was Harris the killer police had been searching for for the past three years? The police's theory in the evangelist murders now hinged on a religious maniac being responsible. One crazed cult leader killing a rival didn't seem so far-fetched. Especially considering how brutally Harris murdered Smith. But Harris immediately confessed to killing James Smith. Why would he deny killing Benny Evangelist after three years? Smith was a sacrifice to Harris's gods, a sacrifice he was proud of. What if he killed Benny and his family in order to take out a competing religion? 
Without a higher purpose, perhaps Harris would feel more ashamed about his crime. The police needed to know if there was a real connection. Why are you inking my hand? We need your prints, King. I already told you that I killed the man. This is for something else. Remember Benny Evangelist? Who? He ran a cult not ten blocks from your home. He and his whole family were chopped to pieces three years ago. I don't know anything about that. From where I'm sitting, you're looking pretty good for it, so we're taking your prints. I don't know anything. When did that happen? July, 1929. I wasn't in Detroit in July. Didn't move from Tennessee until later that fall. You can check. Oh, we will. Now hold still until the ink dries. The police took Harris's prints because the only tangible physical evidence of the killer at the evangelist crime scene was a set of prints on the doorknob to Benny's office. If Harris's prints matched, investigators could be confident that they finally had their man. Unfortunately for the police, Robert Harris was telling the truth. His prints did not match those found in Benny's office. And he was indeed still living in Tennessee in July 1929 when the St. Albans Street Massacre took place. James Smith's murder was wrapped up nicely, but Detroit's finest had hit another dead end in the evangelist murders. And as time wore on, things were looking increasingly grim for the investigation. Desperate for explanations, the police began to come up with increasingly bizarre theories. One Detroit police lieutenant proposed that the St. Albans Street Massacre was one of 40 unsolved homicides linked to a single serial murderer. The lieutenant proposed that these 40 murders were all based around holidays, with the evangelist family being murdered just before the 4th of July. The so-called killer was nicknamed the Holiday Ripper and is similar in concept to a villain featured in the limited comic series Batman The Long Halloween, published in the 1990s. But the theory was never seriously considered by the Detroit Police Department. Astrologers and psychics were also consulted. One psychic medium, known as Princess Lazuli, was allowed to hold a seance in Benny Evangelist's office where he was beheaded. I must sit in his chair exactly as he was sitting. Now I will commune with the departed. He is here. Benny Evangelist is here. I see him standing before me. Can you speak to him? What's he saying? It is difficult. He is trying to say something. I sense that he very much would like to tell me something important. And? What's wrong? I cannot understand his words. They're not in English. Italian, I think. We have officers fluent in Italian. Can you repeat his words back to us? I... I am sorry. I do not want to make a mistake. I cannot. (sighs) I guess we're done here. Police were so desperate for clues that they allegedly even tried to get information from the evangelist's children's dog. The dog, a shaggy brown mutt, had disappeared after the killings, but a record was taken of the dog's license number. Sometime later, the dog was found and identified by its license number on its collar. But any evidence the dog may have taken from the crime scene was long gone. And so it seemed that the Detroit police's investigation into the St. Aubin Street Massacre had finally run cold. But six years after the murders, new information came to light that led detectives right back to the very first suspect in the case. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. Now, our story continues. 
Excuse me, is this Detective Snyder's desk? Detective Charles Snyder at your service, ma'am. And this is Detective George Brown. How can we help you, miss? Teresa Micucci, I have some information about an old case, about my husband. Which case? The Benny Evangelist murder. I think my husband did it. And who is your husband? Well, my then-husband, Umberto Tecchio. Umberto Tecchio, if you recall, was the very first suspect arrested after the murders. That's right. He was the last person known to see Benny alive, having made a payment on a property that he purchased from Benny the night before the murders. Tecchio and one of his roommates, Angelo Depoli, were arrested on July 3rd, a few hours after the bodies were found. A large knife was found at their property that police believed could have been the murder weapon. But they were cleared. Their other roommates in the boarding house vouched for their whereabouts, and Depoli's knife had no blood residue. They were clean. Furthermore, neither Tecchio's nor Depoli's prints matched those found on the doorknob in Benny's office, presumed to be the killers. But Detectives Snyder and Brown knew the city was still desperate to catch the murderer in the St. Albans Street Massacre, and they let Teresa tell her story. What you don't know is that before the murders, Umberto took me to the Evangelist house several times for treatment. I know the inside of the office. What are you trying to tell us, Mrs. Maikuchi? You say you never found the murder weapon, but I know what was missing. In the office, above the desk, there were two machetes hanging from the wall. Umberto owns machetes? Yes. You never found them, but they should have been there. Umberto would have known if they were missing, too. He was very angry, my husband. Now, this revelation about the machetes may seem unimportant, but up to this point, we've glossed over certain facts about Umberto Tecchio. You see, the evangelist killings weren't Tecchio's first encounter with the law. In fact, by July 1929, Umberto Tecchio was already a known killer. Liar! For my sister's sake, pay me the money! No! No! You apologize to me! We forget the whole thing! Give it to me! I have you now, pig. Pig? I'll stick you like a pig. In April 1929, about three months before the St. Aubin Street Massacre, Umberto Tecchio stabbed his brother-in-law, Bart Moflo, to death in a dispute over a debt. Police accepted Tecchio's claim of self-defense and let him go without being charged. But Teresa, his wife, divorced him just three weeks after her brother's death. She got to keep their house, which was why Tecchio was in the boarding house in July. Good for her. And that wasn't the only suspicious death. Three years after the evangelist killings, Teresa's second husband, Louis Peruzzi, was found shot through the heart on the porch of their home. Police ruled it a suicide. But just before his death, Peruzzi asked for police protection against Tecchio, who had threatened to kill him and blow up the house. This sounds incredibly suspicious. Yes, it does. Reports are unclear as to whether or not Detroit police questioned Tecchio again at this time about Peruzzi's death or the evangelist murders. Well, if they didn't, it sure sounds like they should have. But now, in light of his ex-wife Teresa's new information and considering the circumstantial evidence, police were taking a new look at Tecchio. And it wasn't long before other witnesses were coming forward with new information. 
Frank Costanza was a 14-year-old paperboy at the time of the murders in 1929. Now 20, he came forward to speak with Detective Snyder and Brown. So you're saying you saw Tecchio come out of the evangelist's house on July 3rd, in the morning of the murders? That's right, sir. I was doing my route around 5 a.m. when I saw Mr. Tecchio on the front porch. It wasn't strange that he was there so early? He lived nearby. I knew he and Mr. Evangelist knew each other. I didn't think nothing of it at first. What changed your mind? Mr. Tecchio bought from me in the past, so I said hello. But he only grunted in reply and ignored me, so I kept going. When I later heard what happened, I was so afraid that I avoided that block for weeks. Why didn't you come forward six years ago? Why wait? I tried to get word to the police through a friend, but no one ever got back to me. <sighs> one more thing lost in the shuffle. What a mess. With Tecchio looking better and better as a suspect, the detectives went back to poke holes in Tecchio's alibi. When Tecchio and Angelo Depoli were arrested the day of the murders, their housemates had said that Tecchio had gone out drinking and was sleeping in the boarding house on the morning of July 3, 1929 which didn't match the new information from Frank Costanza. Depoli had long since been deported back to Italy, but police spoke again with Camilo Treas, who had shared an adjoining room with Tecchio at the time of the murders. I went with Tecchio to Evangelist's house the night before. I sat on the porch while Tecchio and Evangelist spoke inside. Can you tell us what they discussed? I couldn't hear so well to make out the words. I heard only that Tecchio spoke loudly and Evangelist said I couldn't hear him at all. After we left, Tecchio would only say he paid him. When did you leave? About 8 p.m. We walked back to the boarding house. Then about an hour later, Tecchio asked me to go out with him to some blind pigs. You, you went out drinking? That's right. We got back in around 11 that night. The others were already asleep and I went straight to bed. I assume Tecchio did as well. What about the next morning? I... I woke up around 7 a.m. I'm certain that Techie was not home at that time. Do you know when he came back? Not until that afternoon, just before the police arrived. Say around 4 o'clock. He came in the back door carrying his mason bag. Mason bag? Yeah, for his, uh, for his masonry tools. It's about three feet long, made of canvas. Would you say his bag could hold a large knife? Like a machete? Yeah, probably. And you didn't mention this to the detectives at the time? They never took me in for questioning. I assumed they had what they needed. The answers from Camillo Treas were damning. Not only were there now significant doubts about Umberto Tecchio's alibi, but combined with his ex-wife's information about the missing machetes from Evangelist's office... And the fact that a witness could place him at the scene of the crime... It was looking like the Detroit police might finally have their man. But all of this new evidence against Tecchio was circumstantial. Remember, when Tecchio and Angelo Depoli were initially arrested, their prints were taken and they didn't match those found at the crime scene. And no murder weapon was ever found. Not the machetes, newly brought up by Teresa Maicucci, Tecchio's ex-wife, not an axe, nothing. All of that aside, Detroit's police had an even bigger problem. Umberto Tecchio was already dead. He had died of a cerebral hemorrhage in 1934. Ironically, Tecchio's death was also the likely reason that so many witnesses were now willing to come forward. So, what does this mean for the case? The police had all of this new information, but it was all hearsay. And with Umberto Tecchio dead, the detectives couldn't interrogate him or gather new physical evidence. 
This left Detroit police with a strong new theory, but no real way to prove it. The case of the St. Albans Street Massacre had stalled once again. This time, perhaps, for good. The work of Detective Snyder and Brown led to the official reopening of the case of the July 3, 1929 murders of Benny Evangelist, his wife Santina, and their four children, Angelina, Matthew, Jenny, and Mario. On August 19, 1935, just about six years and one month after the killings, Detroit Police Commissioner Heinrich Pickert ordered a complete report of all the data obtained by the department up to that point. The report was meant to be the last word in the case. But what it mostly showed was how the investigators overlooked what may have been key evidence. They finally had a strong suspect in Umberto Tecchio, but now he was dead. And so were any potential insights he could have offered into the truth. Ultimately, the report was inconclusive and the case was closed unsolved. But I think we can be fairly confident in sticking with Tecchio as our final suspect in this case. Yeah, I agree, which brings us full circle in our investigation. On July 3rd, only a few hours after the bodies of Benny and his family were found, the police learned of Umberto Tecchio and arrested him. They suspected bad blood over Tecchio's recent purchase of property from Benny Evangelist. Perhaps Benny was demanding more money than Tecchio believed that he owed. We can only speculate. The details of their arrangement were never made public. And Tecchio was the last person known to have visited the evangelists the night before they were killed. But there wasn't enough evidence, and Tecchio's alibi seemed solid, so the police had let him go. They moved on to the Black Hand extortion racket, even going out of state to interview a supposed cousin of Benny's, a Louis Evangelista, who had bad blood with the criminals, but that was a dead end. Then the investigation latched onto the cult angle. You can't blame them, really. A man was found decapitated, his wife and young children were hacked to death, and occult literature was scattered all around the house. Not to mention the papier-mâché gods floating over the altar in the basement. Right. That bizarre setting heavily implies that the murder spree was an unhinged devotee of Benny's cult. But that line of thinking led the investigators to a dead end. None of Benny's followers were willing to come forward. One of the detectives on the case, Michael Larco, tried to pin the case on a deranged but innocent man for the reward money. For several years, Detroit's finest looked into other cult leaders and acquaintances of Benny's, who were already presumed dead. They held a seance at the crime scene in a desperate bid for supernatural help. All the while, their initial suspect was a known killer. A couple more years passed, Umberto Tecchio died, and now, safe from reprisal, witnesses came forward and poked all sorts of holes in his alibi for the evangelist killings. A known killer had business dealings with the victim, behaved suspiciously according to witness testimony, and had no real alibi. Practically a slam dunk. But again, the machetes that were supposedly missing from the crime scene were never found, and Tecchio's prints did not match the ones found by police. Fingerprints are hardly conclusive, though. There's no way of telling if those prints were really the killers or not. That's true. All that we really know is that none of the arrested suspects' prints matched. In the end, behind all of those bizarre theories and fringe suspects, The most likely perpetrator was the very first real suspect. Mm. The simplest explanation can often be right. And in the case of the St. Aubin Street Massacre, it was quickly lost in the media hype and quirks of its victims. 
If the detectives had just pressed harder on Tecchio and the witnesses on that first day or so of the case, it's possible that they would have had their man. Instead, we'll just have to settle for possibilities. And Umberto Tecchio seems to be the most likely killer of Benny and Santina Evangelist and their children. But because no confession was ever made and no conclusive physical evidence was ever found, the truth can never be known for certain. The killer took his reasons for slaughtering an entire family to the grave. In the years after the St. Aubin Street Massacre, the evangelist's home at 3587 St. Aubin Street was turned into a funeral parlor. A morbid tribute to the terrible events that took place in its walls. The building was torn down in the 1940s, along with much of the surrounding neighborhood. There's no trace left at all of the evangelists, of their strange religion, or of the brutal crime that took all of their lives. All that remains is a weedy, vacant lot, forgotten with the passing of time. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Aaron Thomas and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, Nick Masu, Steve Pinto, and Greg Polson. 